The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Well, how do you know that you're loved? I remember the early days of our marriage. Uh, by God's grace, we did a lot of um, premarital counseling. If you kind of know our story, you can see how that would be definitely by God's grace. And we ended up being a ministry that did a lot of premarital counseling to a college campus. And the person who was running that ministry was very fond of this book, The Five Love Languages. Um, and I think, I'll just say up front, the idea behind this book, The Five Love Languages, is good. Observing how your spouse or those around you receive love, and then doing so, studying them, and then figuring out how you can best serve them and love them in a way that they'll appreciate and respond to, whether you know, that's physical affection or quality time or gifts or words of praise or affirmation. I think there are very valuable lessons to be learned that way, particularly the way that you give and serve others. However, I do think there is a deep kind of seated trap that you could fall into if you're not careful, particularly as it relates to receiving love that way. Uh, so, so, if you begin your thought process about how I am loved with yourself and saying this is starting with me and, and this is how I need to be loved, you're going to run into problems. Uh, and if you're not married, don't worry. There are lots of applications for you as well in that line of thinking, whether you relate to how you wait, relate to people at work or potential relationships that you would have or even your family. So we don't want to start off thinking about ourselves as the center point of our understanding of love. How are we perceiving to be fulfilled? Our perception of whether or not our needs or our feelings or our immediate circumstances are the way that we need them to be. Because, friends, what if God has a different plan for loving you? What if God has a different schedule for the way that you experience love? The Bible just hurls theological missile after missile at this kind of sort of self-centered thinking about love. The Bible actually places God in the center of the universe of our lives. And he defines the terms in which we would love him and know him and then redefines the way that we interact and love others. Ultimately with our goal being that they would know him and love him and be satisfied on him. So how do you know that God loves you? Does he? How do you know that God cares for you? How do you think about that question? Have you had thoughts that because of a continuing need in your life or a continual trial, that God has forgotten you? Or he's even abandoned you? How do you measure God's care for you? Is it with your circumstances? Your mood, the ease of your life this week, the size of your family, whether or not you're married, whether or not you're healthy, beautiful, wealthy. Often these tend to be our love languages, don't they? When we have these things, we know we're being loved. Well, last week we began a study of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And we mentioned that this book is divided up into sections that really highlight three main characters. 
and their leadership of Israel into a new chapter of Israel's history. A nation going away from a tribal people led by judges, but ultimately led by God, to a monarchy led by a king who is ideally also led by God. The first seven chapters of the book deal with the first main character, Samuel, who is both a prophet and a judge. But centrally in this story, he's a kingmaker. So he's used of God to speak his word prophetically, but also to anoint new leaders for God's people. And today we're going to see the circumstances surrounding his birth. So the main characters in our passage today are Samuel's parents. Um, So we'll see particularly a focus on his mother, his godly mother, Hannah. And we'll walk through Hannah's experience, both of deep pain and anxiety and mental anguish and then joy and delight and worship. And really the key to understanding this passage and the main point of today is to see the change in Hannah going deeper than just an answered prayer. We'll see a total reorientation of her heart. A total reprioritization of her affections, going higher than good gifts, even children, higher than beloved children, ultimately to God, the giver himself. So we'll see for Hannah that God cares and that God is enough. If you want to think about one sentence to summarize this text, that's what it would be for me. God is enough. The greatest gift God gives is himself. It doesn't get any better than knowing God, both in our pain and our rejoicing. God is the goal. God is the healer. God is the victory. God is the source of all of our joy. God is enough. And Hannah's going to show us this in this passage. So I want to make three observations as we walk through the the text. I'm going to divide it up into scenes. As If you see it in your bulletin there as scenes, we probably could divide it into four or five. We're going to take it down to three. Three scenes. Uh, So you see there in your notes, first, uh, scene one, we want to look at Hannah's pain in verses one to eight, Hannah's pain. And then secondly, we want to see Hannah's prayer in verses nine to 17. And then the third scene, the the camera lens is going to go back some, and we just want to look at Hannah's God as we look at the rest of our text all the way through chapter two that Billy read. If you don't have a, a copy of God's word, let me invite you to grab one of those black ESV Bibles on the back. You'll find 1 Samuel on page 225. You'll be greatly helped just to have a copy of God's Word in front of you as we go through it together. And I just pray this text would serve us well in our own thinking about God's love and care for us and our love and care for others, especially when we go through dark and difficult times, that God himself is our greatest gift. God is enough. So let's look at our first scene, Hannah's pain. Hannah's pain. The book begins with um, what I would call kind of a strange genealogy as we're introduced to Elkanah. I say it's strange because typically when we come to genealogies in the Bible, it's introducing someone famous. It's introducing someone we know is going to be important and they have important ancestry, clear, important purpose. At first glance, we don't see that with Elkanah. So verse one, there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim. That's his hometown of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elahu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Epaphrite. Ephrathite. There we go. 
That took, that's, that takes practice. So he's a certain man. Just kind of a general description. That's not showing up on our business cards when we hand out, hey, I'm a certain guy. Um, he's, this Epaphrite means that he's from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is also known as Ephathra. So that gets our attention a little bit. As we've been thinking about, we read the Bible, we know, okay, Bethlehem is pretty important. Uh, we know there's going to be someone introduced later in 1 Samuel who's going to put Bethlehem on the map. King David, it's going to be, we're going to, we're going to see that he comes from there. His, Jesse is from there. And of course, the great King Jesus would eventually be born in this humble place as well. So we get something about lowly beginnings from Elkanah. Continuing with his bio, chapter 2, or verse 2, rather, he has two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. So we see that Elkanah is a devout man. He obeys Moses' command to make regular trips to the tabernacle to worship. Uh, Likely this is the Feast of Tabernacles that he's participating in, or it could be just attending a personal private pilgrimage that he's making with his family. And then presiding over this feast would be Hophni and Phinehas. These are Eli's sons. They're just introduced to us here. We're going to find out a lot more about them next week. And so we'll just save that for next week. We know who they are. They're presiding over these sacrifices. But Elkanah is described as an upstanding Israelite who's committed to worship God. And he has two wives. Throw that in there. Which points to the reality, at least that he has some means. He has some money because he's, he's, got, he's able to support two wives and, and a family. But it also points to trouble. Because the Bible often describes polygamy without comment. But that doesn't endorse it. Right? It doesn't, the Bible's not endorsing it by describing it. In Genesis 2, we're very clear that God intends marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. And then we know, just looking at the Bible, whenever we see this description of multiple spouses, multiple wives, the outcome is never good. It's always chaos, pain, destruction. This family is no different. So we see that Hannah here is introduced first, which suggests that she's the first wife, uh, but she's unable to have children. And you just need to understand, in this ancient social setting, the most important role for a wife is to produce children, particularly sons. That's how men of financial means would have passed along their legacies and resources through their sons. And likely what had happened here was Elkanah realized that Hannah is not able to continue that legacy. And so he takes matters into his own hands and gathers for himself another wife who is fertile and who is able to have children. I just wonder if that sounds familiar, right? This is a regular refrain refrain as we read the Bible. Think Hagar and Sarah or Bilna and Rachel. And so surprising, not surprisingly, the family dynamics are full of tension. Uh, They're more tense um, than they would be otherwise. So look at verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So Elkanah would make these yearly sacrifices to the Lord. And 
then there would be this family feast that would follow. And he would give portions of the sacrifice to his family. And you just have to put yourself in the chair at dinner to get the pain and the tension going on here for Hannah. He would pass out these hunks of meat one after another to Penina, and she would distribute them to all of her many children. Now, verse 5 in the Hebrew is actually tricky. So if you have the ESV, you'll see a footnote there. It either means, as the ESV has taken it, that Elkanah gave Hannah a double portion because he loved her, which we know would create strife between the two wives, favoritism, or something like, although he loved her, he would only give her a single portion because the Lord had closed her womb. So it's to be read that way, and I'm not sure which way we should read it, but if it's to be read that way, it, it, it makes sense that she would receive less food because she only has one mouth to feed. And of course, that contrast would just kind of add to her own pain, wouldn't it? This, on this side of the table, abundance, bustling children eating. And on this side, just Hannah, just her, quietly eating her food. But that wasn't all that caused her pain. Notice Penina is described as her rival. That's not good in a family to have a rival. Probably because she knew that Hannah was Elkanah's favorite And her rival intentionally provoked and attacked her. Precisely because she had no children. Precisely because the Lord had closed her womb. So you can just imagine the many different ways this could happen. She calling her children up to get the food and making passing comments like, I just can't even remember all their names, I have so many. Asking questions to to Hannah like, why don't you think God has blessed you with children? Are you hiding some sin from him? What do you do with all the extra time on your hands anyway? How long do you think Elkanah is going to keep you around? And friends, it's not just one interaction. This happens, verse 3, year by year. And the kicker is there is no known sin. There is no fault of her own that we know of. The text is just really clear. The Lord had closed her womb. So we we see God's clear, sovereign hand over Hannah's suffering and her pain. And this particular year, she just came to a breaking point. She stopped eating and began to weep. And Elkanah, as a good husband, tries to help. Husbands, we do this, don't we? We try to help. Verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Clearly, he didn't read the five love languages, right? Now, I think what he meant to say was that you are worth to me more than ten sons. That's not what he said. That's not what's recorded in Holy Scripture. This must have unintentionally, perhaps, I mean, I think he's trying. Okay? Maybe even making things worse for Hannah. Like, why are you so upset? You've got me. Come on. There's a heaviness to this story, isn't there? It's particularly heavy because it's so real. Uh, Many of you here this morning have been or are right now where Hannah is. Maybe not polygamous marriage and rival wives. 
but in the same state of helplessness and discouragement. Maybe it's just how you're treated as a single person. Perhaps there's a desire that you have to be married, but in God's providence, that hasn't happened. And then every time you see a couple embrace or hear of another friend getting married that you went to high school with, or you're in a church like ours with mostly married people with families, and you just feel kind of out of the loop in conversations because everything's so focused on marriage and family that you just can't contribute. There's a kind of sort of mental taunting, a feeling in the back of your mind that you just, you're really just not as important, not as complete as these people who are around you. Or, or maybe it's literally Hannah's situation that you're unable to have children. Or you've had miscarriages and long years of trying and still nothing. And so every Mother's Day, every baby dedication is a silent taunting from the enemy. So friend, if you're in a Hannah-like position right now, so glad that you're with us. As a church, we want to be a place where you can struggle. We want to be a family for you. God actually intends that, that you would have a family of people who love you, who know Jesus, that aren't ignoring your situation, not being insensitive to your pain, but loving you where you are, and then helping you to see and long after God as we seek to see and long after God. So even though it doesn't seem like it, in your suffering, whatever that may be, I'm just generalizing what it may be, You actually have a great advantage over people who are just happy-go-lucky all the time. Because you have a built-in mechanism in your life that, that forces you to be dependent upon God. And the reality is, the secret of the Christian life to true contentment is getting to the point in our lives when God actually is enough for us. That he actually is our satisfaction. That he actually is our deepest joy. He's the goal. And I hope we see that as we study Hannah's life. And and I hope we model that as we live out our lives here. Particularly if you're a member of our church. We need to grow in the way that we look and and care for people who are like Hannah. We need to learn not to see everyone through our own experiences. I need to learn this as a preacher. Not just when I think through application. I'm only thinking about those of you that are married. Only thinking about those of you who have lots of kids. Because that happens to be, you know, my experience. Right? We can just assume that everyone in the room is married in our conversation. We can assume that everyone should have four or five children, you know, if you're a Christian or especially if you're Reformed. But just notice how that subtly just takes God out of the equation. God opens and closes the womb. How often have I heard young married couples say, you know, we're going to wait X amount of years before we have kids. Well, maybe. God opens and closes the womb. He brings people together in marriage, sovereignly, or doesn't. He calls them to singleness, either for a season or for a lifetime. And our goal as a church is to see this as the ultimate goal, that God is the goal, and for people to know God and be satisfied in him, whether they're single, married, parents or not. So we need to be, as Baptist Church of the Redeemer, intentional to be a church that's centered on God and his work in all of us.
And so if you're in pain like Hannah, I just pray that you'll see that the same God that meets her in her pain will meet you in yours. Number two, second scene, Hannah's prayer. I think you see here the temptation for Hannah to just to kind of give up. She's been long-suffering in her situation at home. It's less than ideal. This is the, she lives in this house. There's no signs of change. And now she comes to the priest. She comes to church. And he's, let's just say, less than helpful. Verse 9. And they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to, the, to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition. That you have made to him. So Shiloh is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and thus the tabernacle was there before it eventually came to Jerusalem. And so after the feast, here you see you see Hannah praying to the Lord in front of Eli, who is essentially the head priest of all of Israel at this point. And she as she's praying, silently, her lips are moving, but no sound is coming out of her mouth. And so Eli assumes she must be drunk. And I do think this is a subtle just clue where the leaders of Israel are at this point. You have this godly family, godly woman praying desperately to God, and the priest, and who will find out whose sons are clearly disobeying God, cannot even tell whether what she's doing. But then after she explains herself, uh, he seems to just kind of casually tell her to go in peace. He wishes her the best and that God would answer her. Again, I just see potential for major discouragement here. Like, there's no change in my circumstances, no help from my husband, although he's trying, and no help from the priest. She thinks, he thinks I'm drunk. So, like, is God there? Like, Lord, what are you doing? I'm trying everything I know how to do. And so maybe a, a temptation at this point for her would be take matters into her own hands somehow. Uh, and so perhaps you, you feel that same temptation. I'm done waiting on God. I'm going to do this myself. So if it looks like God's not going to bring me a spouse, um, I'm going to go outside of his protective boundaries and plan for my life in my own way. Or if I'm a wife and I'm tired of waiting on my husband to lead, I'm just going to take control of things and just watch him kind of step aside again. Or if I'm short again this month and don't have enough money to make ends meet, I'm going to just take out that credit card and again just put myself in a hole for years. Because I think we see in Hannah's life the great wisdom that comes in waiting on God and not taking matters into our own hands, not trading in God's wise and eternal plan for our own short-term fix that will result in destruction and more difficulty in the long run. 
So instead of taking matters into her own hands, she prays. She brings her tears, verse 10. She wept bitterly. She brings her distress, verse 10. She brings her great anxiety and vexation, verse 16, to the Lord in prayer. So, brother and sister, don't hide your pain and anxiety from God. Bring it to him in prayer. And as she prays, she vows to the Lord that if she has a son, she will dedicate him to serve God all of his life. Verse 11. So the no razor touching his head is a reference to what we would call a Nazarite vow, uh, most likely. So you can read about that in Numbers chapter 6. It's a vow of dedication to the Lord. Um, but, but Hannah, it, typically it's temporary with a beginning and an end. But Hannah has in mind something that's permanent, a lifestyle and devotion uh, forever of serving God. She seems to understand that there's something greater at work in her prayer than just becoming pregnant. She desires for her son to be a servant of God and for him to be used to help kind of bring it together the people of Israel who themselves are barren of God's promises that they should have been experiencing in God's land and under God's blessing. So she desires to know her God more deeply and to see his glory more fully. And she takes her distress and discouragement and depression to the Lord in prayer. Brother and sister, what a great model of prayerful trust in God this is for us. Listen, she knows that her womb is closed because the Lord closed it. She believes in God's control over all things, including who gets pregnant and who doesn't, who gets married and who doesn't, who has a disease or a trial or loss and who doesn't. But notice that God's sovereignty doesn't lead her to resentment. So why would you do this to me, God? Why me, God? It doesn't lead her to fatalism. Well, if God has done it, then it's done, and I'm just going to live with it and walk away. No, it leads her to come in faith to her God, knowing that he is not only sovereign, but he's also good. And that he is working all things, even her infertility, for her good and for his glory. She speaks the words of Romans 8.28 before it's written. I think this balance of understanding God's sovereignty and coming to the Lord in prayer is captured really well in 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So Peter acknowledges God's sovereignty He acknowledges God's mighty hand. We need to be humbled under that. But then we also need to cast all of our anxieties, all of our weight, all of our vexation on him because he cares for us. His hand is mighty and sovereign and he cares for us. Christian, he cares for you. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forgotten about you. Come to him with your tears, with your anxiety, with your distress, with your discouragement, with your sin. Don't gauge his love for you by your circumstances. He's made it much deeper than that, much clearer than that. So come to God in prayer. He's a good father and he has a good purpose for those that are his. And we'll see that as we just continue through this story. So let's look at the third scene. Hannah's God. Scene number three, Hannah's God. Since I'm preaching on the book called Samuel, I think you kind of get a spoiler 
Um, she's going to have a son, and indeed she does. But I think there's a danger sometimes in the happily ever after stories, even the ones like this one that are true, because we want to just understand that not everyone in this situation gets this same kind of answer from God. Not every woman in Israel in Hannah's day received the same kind of blessing that she did. In fact, her story is much about the turning of the page in salvation history, uh, about Israel and God's work in his covenant people, as it is about a mother having a son. Nevertheless, I just want to point out how Hannah zeroes in on the true gift she's been given. And I think we say it, see it in the way she responds to God even before her circumstances change. So look at verse 18. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. This is after Eli said, go in peace. Then the woman went her way and she ate and her face was no longer sad. And they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. What's changed at this point? Well, circumstantially, nothing. She's still going home with Elkanah and Malvi Penina, empty-handed. She's, however, no longer sad. And now she's eating before she couldn't. And then in verse 19, she's worshiping before the Lord. I just think it's important to see that Hannah's faith isn't produced by her trial but it gets her through her trial. By God's grace, God has become enough for her. God has become enough. She prayed probably a thousand times for a child. But this time, she seems to have realized and come to understand that God is enough. God cares. God is there. Even the Lord of hosts cares for her. And she loves him. And she worships him. Friends, isn't this the goal of our lives? To see God as more than a means to a blessing. Not to dictate to him what he must do in order for us to love him, but instead to see him and love him for who he is. Right now, in our circumstance, as things are. That we could pray with the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Oh, friend, can you say that? Whatever it is that you want from God is nothing compared to what you have in God. And often he withholds the things that we want most to show us what we have already in him. And as we watch Hannah's story, we see that even though she gets the thing that she wanted most, she holds it loosely because her treasure is in God and God alone. So no matter what level of pain or struggle you're in this morning, I hope that you can still worship like Hannah and still be amazed in the God of 1 Samuel 1 who is with you in the valley, who will be with you for eternity. This is the God of sustaining faith who gives us faith in the ordinary, in the mundane trials and tribulations of life. He holds us up when we can't go on. Well, things do change for Hannah drastically in verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. 
For she said, I have asked for him, I have asked for him from the Lord. So when the text says that God remembered Hannah, it doesn't imply that previously he had forgotten her. It's this covenant-keeping language of God taking actions based upon his promises that he had already made to his people. Hannah has a son because God opened her womb and answered her prayer. Again, we see God's sovereign hand in bringing about life in the womb. And we need to fast forward then one year and we get to verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. You know, as you read this, you sort of feel the tension. Like we're so excited about the birth and then we remember the vow. It's like, Oh, but now you got to give it. Give him away. And then when she initially doesn't go up the first time, you think, well, maybe she's not going to go up. You know, we can relate to that. Like, well, does the Lord really, does it really matter that we do that part of the vow? How long had she waited for this precious gift? How much had she dreamed about having a son and him growing up and taking care of her and, and getting to see him get married one day? But if she completes this vow, she won't be able to do any of that. So winning a child in these days would be two to three years. So She's got two to three years with this young boy. And then as parents, so as parents, just think about that. Two-year-old, three-year-old. Come to verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, Lord, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. She does it. She does it. She parts with her precious child and gives him over to serve the Lord all of his days. There's something going on in Hannah's heart. And understanding that Samuel was never really hers in the first place. But that he always belonged to God. And now she's just giving back to God what was his in the beginning. Parents, isn't isn't this what we want for all of our children, when we get down to it, don't we want them to be serving the Lord, dedicated to him all of their days? Instead of holding so tightly to this gift to her son, instead of having her identity tied up in him, she seeks to give him what's most important to her, a relationship with her God. What more could a parent ask for than what we see in verse 28? If we take the he there in verse 28 to be the young boy, Samuel, He worshiped the Lord there. Kind of redefines what worship means when we look at Hannah's life. Not just a box that we check on Sundays, 
It's something that changes your life. It shapes you into someone else. It gives you a worldview that everything belongs to God. And God is worth everything. He's worth trusting. He's worth our whole lives. That we would live our lives as a living sacrifice to him. What better hands could Samuel be in than in the hands of God? Parents, I just want to encourage you, encourage myself, pray for your children, our children, to be in God's hands, to be dedicated to him. God is enough for Hannah. Friends, is he enough for us? Even when our circumstances don't change. Hannah is about to pray and sing and prophesy one of the most poetic, rich songs ever written. But remember, as she does so, she again is effectively childless. That crib is now empty. That corner where he played is now empty. And so she prays and sings this famous prayer and song out of the overflow that God has filled her heart with. She is changed. Her heart is taken up with God. And it just comes out in this prayer. This is never about her. Never about even her courageous faith. But it's always been about her God. You could divide this prayer up into sections. I'm not going to read it again. Billy read it earlier. Verses 1 and 2, you see kind of an opening. Um, You see the body of the prayer, the song, in verses 3 to 8. And the closing in verses 9 to 10. Just see this flowing out of her heart. And if you haven't listened to last week's sermon, we talked about how this prayer in many ways outlines the book of 1 Samuel. So you could just bullet point how these things that are, that are prayed here show themselves again throughout the rest of the book. You see every element of Hannah's life affected by God's grace. Notice there in verse 1, her heart exalts in the Lord. Whereas before it was sad and despondent and hopeless, her horn is exalted. That's a word for strength. Uh, It's lifted by God, probably a reference to, to the animal horn that would show its mighty strength and victory. Before she's unable to eat, unable to see past her tears. And now she's strong in the Lord. Her mouth derides uh, her enemies. It rejoices in her salvation. Literally, this is a picture of an animal's mouth being wide open, kind of victoriously over its enemies. It's a prayer of victory in the Lord. She rejoices in her salvation. Here again, you just see Hannah speak to something beyond her circumstances, salvation. Well, what what do we, we miss that? Well, we see that this is more than just a pregnancy. She is this representative of Israel, and just like God looked upon the affliction of the Israelites in Egypt, in their slavery, he's looked upon Hannah and her people's need for God's saving hand. And just as God delivered the people then, he's shown Hannah he's going to continue to deliver and provide for the people. Only God can do this. Only this holy God. There is none like the Lord. No rock beside our God. And then you just read through the body in verses 3 to 8 of this prayer that Yahweh is a God of knowledge. No one can stand up against him. For not only does he observe, he weighs the motives of our actions. Everything that's described in these verses reverses worldly norms. Just let your eyes scan over it. The mighty are defeated. The feeble are strengthened. The, The full will be unsatisfied. The poor will be full. The barren will rejoice, and the woman with many children will be forlorn or miserable and sad. 
Like, you won't find joy in your circumstances. No matter how many children you have. The Lord is sovereign and he is our source of contentment. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings low and exalts. He's the ruler of the world. And Hannah has seen this up close and personal. And as we study 1 Samuel, we'll see it over and over again. And so she closes her prayer and song with God's judgment and his sovereignty over his enemies. Friends, if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're here, you need to read and understand that God is not only holy, not only all-knowing, but he has the power to judge. And because of your sin against him, you face his judgment. And there is no way to escape that judgment by your own good works. You must have a Savior. You must have someone to come in your place, on your behalf, to pay the penalty that you deserve. He is holy. He will judge. He knows all. Friend, I would just encourage you to meditate and consider those realities this afternoon. The Lord, she closes by saying, will prevail. Men won't win these victories by might, but by God's strength. The Philistines are going to learn this lesson. Saul and David will learn this lesson. Already we know that God is using Elkanah and Hannah, who are effectively nobodies, to change the course of history. This is the way God always works. He chooses to show his glory through weakness. This is what we'll see throughout 1 Samuel. And isn't it interesting that after this amazing, enormously important prayer and song, Hannah just kind of disappears. She's gone after this. We don't really hear from her anymore. Verse 11, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. I mean, later we learn that Hannah was continually blessed by the Lord. She did have more children, but really she just moves to the background of the story. And I think that's how she would have had it. She desires for God to be front and center. Her story reminds us that our hopelessness is no barrier to God's work in our lives. It doesn't matter that you've made mistakes that because of your uh, sins against God or because you're just a nobody from nowhere. God loves to work with people like that. It's often we're the most hopeless and helpless that God just delights to show grace and power through our lives. He delights in showing us that he is indeed enough and more than enough for us. It's hard to read through these miraculous accounts, this birth narrative in particular, and not just begin to think about another baby and another amazing story of someone being born under the strangest of circumstances. Of course, really close to where we are in 1 Samuel, we see the story of King David. Um, David, who comes from Jesse of Bethlehem, grows into be Israel's strongest king. And if you flip, don't you have to do it now, but to the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 22, you see David praying kind of a prayer and a song very, very similar to Hannah's here. So it's like a bookend, that prayer beginning here in chapter 2 and ending there at the end of 2 Samuel, just again expounding on God's faithfulness as our rock and our fortress, his exaltation of his messianic king, his anointed one, his deliverance and covenant-keeping love. But friends, it would be hundreds of years before the true fulfillment of Hannah's prayer would come on the scene. 
Hannah prayed that God would strengthen his anointed. Again, that word means Messiah. And when you translate that word in Greek, it means Christos. And so one night in the hill country of Judah, a young girl named Mary prayed a prayer that sounds not too far from what Hannah had sung years ago. So I just want to read from Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those who are of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Friends, God does care. If you doubt it, just remember that he sent his only son, the precious Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us. He was dedicated to his father like no one else. He was the fulfillment of every prophet. As he spoke faithfully and authoritatively, he was the perfect high priest who would make the ultimate sacrifice of himself for his people. His death on the cross was our substitute. His life was worthy to be counted as our righteousness and to atone for our sin. And God did raise up his anointed from the dust. And he rose victorious over the grave on the third day. Our great prophet, our high priest, and also our great king lives and reigns forever. And it's coming again for you and for me to forever take away your pain and forever to bring you to himself. If you ever wonder if God loves you, let the story of Hannah point you to Christ. He died to give us the greatest gift of all, the gift of God himself. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and are so grateful for your word. Lord, we do pray that you would be lifting up your people now by your spirit. May we be conformed by your word. May we be challenged by it. Help us to repent of our self-sufficiency, of just determining that we're going to sort of plan our life apart from you. Lord, humble us under your mighty hand. And Lord, help us to regularly cast our anxieties, our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us, that you have a a plan behind what we see every day. And that plan is for your glory, and that plan is for our good. So Lord, stir up each day a greater trust and love for you. Lord, bless us now, even as we think over these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, 
bcredeemer.org.